57 people killed, 16 beheadings, 41 deaths by asphyxiation. This was the outcome of Brazil's latest deadly prison riot. I say latest because riots have become a morbid recurrence in the Brazilian news cycle. In 2019 alone, this is the second such massacre we have seen from within the walls of the country's penitentiaries. Since the turn of the year of 2016 to 2017, over 200 inmates were killed within government-run facilities, and in other countries this would spark outrage, protest and public disgust. But not in Brazil, a country where more and more people believe that good criminals are dead criminals. However, treating inmates as subhuman only worsens the problem. Violence-infested penitentiaries have become a hotbed for drug gangs to recruit new members. And this week, we tried to understand exactly how things became so bad. My name is Ewan Marshall, standing in for Editor-in-Chief Gustavo Ribeiro of The Brazilian Report, and this is Explaining Brazil. Brazil currently has the carceral infrastructure to house 415,000 inmates, but Brazil's prison population is of at least 812,000 people. In most facilities, prisoners are subjected to the most abject of conditions, and to find out more about exactly what it is like behind the walls of a Brazilian penitentiary, we spoke to Robert Mugga, a political scientist and co-founder of the Igarapé Institute. Uh, there are over 2,000 state prisons in this country of 200-plus million people, uh, as well as several hundred federal uh, prisons. Uh, and these prisons are absolutely overcrowded, um, described by a previous justice minister as barbaric. Uh, he, in fact, claimed that he'd rather die than spend a night in prison, um, but are, are well above capacity, uh, often suffer from extremely unhygienic uh, conditions. Um, in fact, a rash of investigations that were undertaken over the last couple of years suggest that torture and sexual violence are rampant in Brazilian jails. Uh, today, Brazilian inmates are more than 30 times more likely to contract tuberculosis, 10 times more likely to be infected by HIV AIDS, four times more likely to be killed as a result of homicide uh, inside the jail than outside. So these really are, are some challenging conditions. Um, and, and it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, this is a, a problem from hell that uh, unfortunately, it's plagued Brazil for decades. And yes, yeah, so how did we get to this point? You know, this scenario that you've been outlining here is really, it's, it's, it's horrific in so many ways. But how did we get this far? Well, I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that this is not a, a problem that's been created uh, by this current administration, even if it's facing uh, a number of challenges and seems to be uh, struggling to respond to it. This goes back decades and decades uh, and violence in prison, and particularly riots in prisons and massacres in, in prisons involving egregious violence also uh, have been around for, for decades as well. Uh, what has changed in the last uh, 20 years is just the sheer volume of people being put into Brazilian jails. Today, there are more than 812,000 people, uh, give or take, uh, in, in Brazilian jails. In fact, people don't actually know exactly how many there are because there are disputes between the penal authorities 
uh, and the, the the council for the National Justice Council. But let's say there are roughly 812,000 people in Brazilian jails in space for about the, the equivalent of, of about 419,000 people. Uh, but there's been a 160% increase in the prison population since 2000. So we've seen a radical increase as a result of a, a politics and a set of policies of mass incarceration. Uh, and so what's happened is that too many people are being put into jail. 36% of these people are in, on pretrial detention. That is to say, they have not been officially convicted. There's a deficit of public defenders uh, and an abundance, let's say, of, of hardline judges and prosecutors. Um, often the wealthy who end up in federal jails or in higher, let's say, quality jails are in separate cells and often in conditions that might be comparable to, say, North America, Western Europe. Those who are poor tend to be uh, unable to access a public defender and find themselves often crammed four, five, six, seven to a, to a jail cell. Uh, and so, you know, the, the inequality in Brazilian jails and the inequality of treatment in a way mirrors or echoes the wider structural inequalities in Brazilian society. The other big challenge has been the so-called war on drugs. So in addition to this overcrowding and a policy of mass incarceration, a related challenge uh, has been this war on drugs. And a politics that has supported or endorsed or sanctioned uh, mass incarceration for drug offenders, including uh, first-time nonviolent offenders, often with very small quantities of drugs, uh, who are accused of, in, in some cases, being traffickers, even if they're uh, they're reservedly consumers. Uh, and so this uh, has really been ratcheted up in the last decades, often at the urgings of the United States and concert with other countries in Latin America. Uh, and as a result, you've seen prisons being filled with, with you know, often young, poor, black males who are being accused of, of trafficking when in some cases they have been or in other, most, most likely they are consumers, uh, as well as large quantities of women. So it's these twin challenges, I think, of mass incarceration, widely supported by the Brazilian public, together with this war on drugs, which I think has, has led to the situation we're in. Yeah, so that's fascinating because the you're mentioning the mass incarceration, which are roughly all connected to these drug offences. And these prize, sorry, these prison riots that we've had in recent years, these are fueled by gang conflicts, which are, you know, these are groups which originated and you know they, they operate inside the prison system and the increase of incarceration of people for drug offenses ironically kind of stimulates these drug gangs themselves but if you could just kind of explain to us how that movement of organized criminal gangs working within prisons how did this how did we get to that point how did that happen well, many of Brazil's state prisons are effectively overseen by these drug trafficking organizations, and principally the two in Brazil, as many of your listeners will know, are the CV and the PCC, and many of the other smaller gangs are aligned with one or the other group. <clears throat> and these gangs act as judges, jurors, and, and executioners, and, and the facilities themselves, where many of these gang members uh, and affiliates are incarcerated, are divvied up between the gangs. Uh, and the government for the most part, the state-level government in particular has effectively ceded control of many of these prisons and, and various blocks within the prisons to these drug trafficking factions, or often colluding with them to bring in product or, or, or pass on messages. Uh, and so what is a, as a result, many people in Brazil talk of these prisons as being crime colleges or uh, schools for organized crime, because what's happening is these trafficking factions are effectively recruiting their rank and file from the prisons and organizing their trafficking and racketeering businesses uh, from within their gates. 
So if you go back uh, a couple of decades, back to 1992, one of the well, the largest prison riot and massacre was in a prison called Carandiru, which is in Sao Paulo. And over 111 people were killed in this particular massacre. Uh, this, in fact, it was was a result of uh, protests and riots and organized resistance to what were described as and what were really known as inhumane conditions within the prison. Uh, and it led to the formation of the most formidable organized crime racket in the country, the PCC. Uh, and subsequently, we've seen a rash of uh, outbreaks of violence in 24 of 26 Brazilian states, from Rondonia to Maranhão to Pernambuco to Rio to Roraima to Amazonas, and of course, in Pará, among many others. Um, and, and often what's happening here is uh, interfactional violence between different groups and really egregious, gruesome levels of violence, almost performative types of violence to send messages to competing and rival gangs. So, you know, we have a situation where mass incarceration uh, and the overflowing nature of the prisons has resulted in, in a way, strengthening organized crime groups within the prisons because they're effectively able to, to, to garner recruits from those new inmates. And what happens with many inmates when they are baptized, as it's described, as they enter into the prison, uh, they're often required to secure the allegiance with one gang or another in order to manage their protection. But what happens is there's a almost symbiotic relationship that forms because the organized crime group will then provide them with loans and subsidies to their families. Uh, who are outside of the prison walls, so that when they leave, they're indebted uh, to that faction after leaving prison, which explains why, at least is one of the reasons why, you've got a 70% recidivism rate within five years. That is to say, seven out of 10 inmates who leave jail end up back behind the prison walls within uh, a number of years, uh, because you're essentially indebted to and enmeshed in a life of crime after you enter Brazilian jail. Where should we go from here? Like, what what needs to be done? Because I know that we've seen the current justice minister Sergio Moro recently, in the last few months, started to make some sort of sig uh, signal that he would be attacking, uh, sorry, going after criminal organisations more than previous administrations. But the question of mass incarceration is never seems to be mentioned. You know, what what are the solutions, and you know, what should be done? Well, as, as many people know, this, the current president, Jair Bolsonaro, was elected on this promise that he'd crack down on, on violent crime. And he, he brought in Sergio Moro as a super minister of justice and public security uh, to execute this plan. Uh, the president himself has said he intends to stuff the prison with criminals. He's on record as saying he'd rather see a uh, prison cell full of criminals in a cemetery of innocent people. Um, and he's really tried to encourage uh, a, a much more aggressive response. Uh, his justice minister, Sergio Morrow, has introduced a, a security package, which effectively is an anti-corruption bill. It's a set of legislative reforms, 14 legislative reforms, that would, among other things, stiffen sentences uh, for inmates, that would seek to separate gang leaders from the rank and file, uh, that would authorize the building of new prisons. Um, but this package, which was introduced in February, has yet to really make its way through Congress to be voted on. Uh, so, you know, the, the strategy that's being advanced, at least rhetorically, from the executive is more police, more prisons, more repression, more punishment, uh, which is not inconsistent, by the way, with previous strategies under previous administrations. Uh, it is important, though, to say that the, the penal authorities, depend, the, the, sort of the Department for Penal Affairs, has announced a set of proposals to try to redress the pro problem. I mean, it said that it will 
build between 10 and 20,000 new spaces for inmates. It's said it's going to set up a task force to expand access to public defenders. Uh, it said it's going to introduce a, a, another penal prison intervention task force to improve security and custody conditions, and especially in, in these really affected states like Amazonas and Roraima. Uh, and the National Commission on Justice also recently launched a, a new program called Justicia Presente, Presente or ju present justice or justice presence uh, to improve overall record keeping and reduce uh, recidivism. But, you know, these programs are long on ambition, uh, very short on detail. It's not entirely clear uh, where the resources are to, to execute them. So unfortunately, I think we're in a situation now where repression and punishment, I think, will be the continued the policy. I mean, most Brazilians are are pretty numb to the, the prison massacres that they're seeing. Uh, recall that, you know, Brazil is the most homicidal country in the world, and over 80% of Brazilians think they could be a victim of homicide in the next 12 months. But if, if I think if we were to change this around, there are a couple of things that have to happen. Uh, the first has to be an emphasis not just on addressing the stock of inmates, but also addressing the flow. That is to say, it's not just about building more prisons and building more cell space, but really investing in ways of, of trying to reduce, um, you know, reduce the numbers actually going into jail in the first place, uh, which means thinking about alternative sentencing, for example. Uh, it means about prevention programs to keep adolescents and young people uh, from being caught up in a life of crime. Uh, it, it's about uh, trying absolutely addressing this bloated caseload of pretrial detainees, which is outrageous. I mean, that you've got up to upwards 36 percent of the total caseload being people who have yet to be convicted. Uh, it's about encouraging, incentivizing, and requiring federal, state judges, and prosecutors and defenders to set up task forces to absolutely resolve outstanding cases uh, and improving the juvenile justice system. Um, and then at, at the other end, it's about investing in in prison and, and out of prison rehabilitation and recidivism reduction programs. I mean, this is absolutely critical that we ramp up um, programs that are supporting at-risk adolescents uh, to reduce their likelihood of, of, of becoming a member of a gang or resuming uh, life in a gang. But I would say the final point here is, is that these are, sh I mean, abs critical short-term interventions. In the long term, um, you know, if the government's really going to get in control of its public security agenda and the prison system in particular, uh, we have to think about decriminalization. Uh, and rethinking drug laws right now, as well as proportional sentencing um, and, and much more robust investments in areas of concentrated disadvantage. I mean, this is a, a long-term challenge, um, but unfortunately, the, 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 ap the appetite, I think, for these kinds of structural reforms just aren't there right now. Next, we take a look at Brazil's North region, which in recent years has become the focus of most of the country's deadly prison violence. Hi, my name is Juliana Costa. I'm a reporter at the Brazilian Report. Do you like the Explaining Brazil podcast? Then please rate our show on whatever platform you may be listening to. And don't forget to share it with your friends and coworkers. Many people write us asking how they can support this show. The best way is by subscribing to the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind the podcast. You can enjoy a seven-day free trial, and subscription plans start at only $3.90 per month. That's cheaper and healthier than a Big Mac. Go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. The Violence Map Study, a yearly research project carried out by Brazil's Institute for Applied Economic Research and the Brazilian Forum for Public Safety, has shown that murder rates have increased 24% nationwide 
between 2007 and 2017. But in Brazil's north and northeast regions, these increases have hit a staggering 68%. So Gustavo Ribeiro is the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report, and he's the usual host of Explaining Brazil. And he's here with me today to look at just at what is going on in the north of Brazil. Hi, Gustavo. Hi, Ewan. It's kind of weird to be uh, switching places with you. <laughs> just make the most of it. Now, Gustavo, this week's violence in Altamira has gone alongside riots in Manaus earlier this year and other conflicts in the same region in 2017 and 2018. What exactly is going on in the north of Brazil? I think the first thing we have to pay attention to is geography. In the 2000s, Brazil's borders became one of the most important territories in the world of organized crime. Because the decrease in production of cocaine from Colombia meant that operations were ramped up in Bolivia and Peru. And then, in order to get the drug to Europe, they would have to be shipped through Brazil. So, where exactly do the drugs go through Brazil? What are the the main drug routes? So, there are two routes. The first one is the best known one, and it is called the Hillbilly Route. Uh, So the product is taken down to Brazil through Paraguay, and it crosses the border in the region between the city of Pedro Juan Caballero in the Paraguayan side and Ponta Porã in the Brazilian side, in the state of Mato Grosso do Sul. Uh, I've been there a couple of times, and uh, it's impressive how little control over the border there is. So you have just one street, One side of the street, you're in Paraguay. If you just cross the street, you have crossed into Brazil. From there, the product is taken through the countryside to Sao Paulo and the port of Santos, which is the busiest port in Brazil. And so what about the other drug route? This is the most important one to understand the wave of prison violence in the north. It is called the Solimões Route and involves cocaine entering Brazil from Peru via the Solimões River, which is the upper portion of the Amazon River, before going east through Manaus and then to key ports in the northeast of Brazil. So that must be a pretty highly contested region then. Yes, but that wasn't always the case. So previously, the country's two main drug gangs, the Sao Paulo-based PCC and the Rio de Janeiro-based CV, or the Red Command, which you and Robert mentioned earlier in the show, they operated under a sort of non-aggression pact, uh, which involved their allies uh, in the north. But that changed in 2016 when a drug lord who controlled the area in Pedro Juan Caballero uh, was killed, and that created a power vacuum. As we know, Power positions don't stay vacant for long. And that led PCC and the CV to start attacking each other for border control in what became a sort of tit-for-tat kind of war. Yeah, and these regions have become wild places in the recent years, with crime becoming rampant. But interestingly, in 2018, Brazil registered its biggest drop in murders in over a decade, which was a drop of over 13% which is a trend that has continued this year. So how can we explain that? Authorities in some states have adopted a harder but organized, intelligent stance against organized crime, such as stricter monitoring inside prisons with constant search and seize operations to find the presence of drugs or cell phones within the cells. 
and many prisons also implemented what we call the differentiated disciplinary system, which is segregating dangerous inmates in individual cells with close monitoring. Because in Brazil, sometimes you have a guy who was arrested for a petty crime sitting next to a mass murderer. So, And of course, if we start again with the idea that we should continue treating prisoners uh, with violence and making them second-class citizens, we could easily go back to the old problems. This podcast was written and prepared by me, Ewan Marshall. Maria Marta Bruno produced this show. And if you like this podcast, rate us on any platform you may be listening to Explaining Brazil. It just takes a second, but it is really important to us. And make sure to visit our website, which is brazilian.report, and enjoy all of our content for seven days. And it's really free. You don't have to submit any credit card information whatsoever. So go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. And you can also support independent journalism by donating any amount to the Brazilian Report. And go to brazilian.report slash donate. And if you want to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, our handle is at Brazilian Report. And that's all for now. We'll see you next week. Brazilian.